This morning I would ask that you might open your Bible to Ezekiel chapter 38. In a moment, that's where we're going to begin. We have been studying through some of the prophecies that have been delivered by the prophet Ezekiel to the children of Israel, those Israelites, those from the from the uh, nation of Judah who had been taken away into captivity into Babylon. And by now they have been there 20 years or so. By, by now meaning by now in the storyline that, that's here. And, uh, and it's been a difficult thing, but God, through Ezekiel, said, keep hope alive. I'm, I'm at work here. I'm bringing about my plans and my purposes. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts, not your thoughts. Those kinds of things. But the people are probably a little discouraged. The, the circumstances in the world around them uh, seem very, very dark and bleak and perilous. Could be happening today, couldn't it? I guess you're aware of what's going on halfway around the world. And there may be soon, I don't know, but there may be a war. And I've had people that have asked me, is this war, if there is a war, is it the Battle of Armageddon? Well, I can say, I think with confidence today that no, it's not. Because that battle is going to take place at the end of the tribulation period, not toward the beginning. But that doesn't mean it's not a cataclysmic event or an important or a world reshaping event. But uh, I do want us to look at what Ezekiel has to say, probably not about what's going on in Russia and Ukraine, but what is going to take place uh, Somewhere in yet in the yet distant, I shouldn't say distant, from him distant future. Uh, uh, but there, that's what Ezekiel chapter thirty-eight is going to tell us about about a war that is going to take place for uh, being fought by the enemy for the purpose of destroying God's people. Okay, that's their. That's what the. MO is the purpose uh, of, of, the, of the battle that's going to be fought and that's recorded here. Ezekiel chapter 38 and Ezekiel chapter 39 are two of the most widely familiar uh, chapters in all of this book because of this prophecy, of course, and at the same time, probably the most mysterious of them all. What battle is he talking about? Who are these characters that are in the battle? And if that's something that's for a far off time, what does it have to do with me? Well, I told you when we started this series in Ezekiel that arriving at chapters 38 and 39 was my goal. That's why we started this. So I've been looking at this chapter for several weeks in preparation and I have looked at it this week in preparation and I plan to share all of this information with you in this sermon 
I have already decided for your sake. I can stay here all day. You know me. But I've already decided for your sake that we're going to break it into two sermons. So this is part one, and who knows, by next week, it may be three or more. But we want to, we want to make sure that we get all of what is being said in Ezekiel chapter 38. Now, you may be saying, now, what's this chapter about? Remind me again, preacher. It's about the battle of between the battle that is that is being the troops are being gathered for by this person called Gog, and Gog is going to lead uh, Magog and several other uh, nations into battle to come down to destroy Israel. Now, I, I don't want to give away the the ending of this, but I'm going to go ahead and tell you God thwarts their plan. And God intervenes and protects and delivers his people from this destructive war. Now, what this means is this. Children of Judah in Babylon understand you, Babylon has at their heart to destroy you. But I will protect you, says the Lord. That's really what this message is being told to them. Now let me put it into 21st century. People of God, this world is out to destroy you. It's not going to try to encourage you to be faithful to God and faithful to his word. But thus saith the Lord, I will protect you I will defend you, and I will deliver you. Amen. That's the message. We're not going to skip the sermon, okay? But that's the bottom line here. I want you to open to, to chapter 38, and I want you to find verse 1. And we're going, to, we're going to break down chapter 38 today into three, three uh, parts. Uh, first, we're going to look at, we're going to identify the nations that are, that are spoken of in this in this uh, in this battle. We're going to uh, then we're going to talk about and identify when it takes place. What what are the time and the times when this is happening? And then we're going to examine the outcome. What happens here? Now I've already told you point three, but stay with me if you will even through that, even though you know how it's going to end. All right, look at verse one of, of uh, Ezekiel chapter 38. <clears throat> I've entitled from uh, in protect, hope in God's protection in perilous times. And the first thing we're looking at now as we read through verses 1, one through verse 6 is identifying the nations. Can I, before I start to read, can I say this? Because I'm going to tell you we're going to say the names of some nations that, if you're not careful, can easily sidetrack your brain from the message. Okay, you know, you know the old saying, don't lose sight of the forest for the trees. Don't spend, we're going to spend a little bit of time thinking as best we can to identify who, uh, who, these, who these people are. But as we do so, uh, I don't want us to get so consumed with 
trying to figure out who Magog and uh, Meshach and all those places, who they are, let's just, just receive what is being said here as we read together. We'll come back and put some skin on it. The word of the Lord came to me. Verse 2 said, he says, here's what the word of the Lord was. Son of man, am I cutting in and out again? I'm hearing it up here. Okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to get this, this microphone here, and we'll do that. We'll just turn this one off. Are you good with that? Because I can hear it up here, and I didn't know if you were as well. All right, am I good? Son of, here's, here's what he says in verse 2. Son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog. <clears throat> the chief prince of Meshech and of Tubal and prophesy against him and say, thus says the Lord God. Behold, I'm against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and I will turn you about and put hooks into your jaws and I will bring you out and all your, your army, horses and horsemen all of them clothed in full armor, a great host, all of them, with buckler and shield, wielding swords, and all that saying is they are fully armed, with at that time the latest in weaponry. So these are, this is an army that's coming in that God says, I'm bringing in to, uh, to this battle, I'm drawing them in, and they are a formidable foe. The sheer number of troops would, uh, would, would indicate that, but also that they are armed with the very latest in tactical arms. They are an army. He says in verse five, Persia, Cush, and Put are with them, all of them with shield, and Helmet, Gomer, and all his hordes, Beth Togarma, from the uttermost parts of the north, with all his hordes. Many peoples are with you. Did you get that? Okay. At least if you weren't paying, if you weren't just trying to see each tree, but you were seeing the forest, you see that an, a great army arrayed. It, with great military power has been brought down in to do battle against God's people. A great army, powerful army, great in size, great in scope, great in its purpose to, uh, to come down and to attack God's people. Now, where we are in this outline, in my, what I'm sharing today is that we want to identify the nations that are involved. There were several names that were mentioned there. And I, I want to go over this not because I figured it all out. Or I know something you don't know. I, I, I just want to give you some understanding because it's very difficult for us to be... Uh, to be very uh, 
what's the word that I'm looking for? Insistent that this, that I'm right, that to be very dogmatic about, um, about these things because it's difficult for us to know who these people are. Okay, but I want to try to put a little bit of skin on it so that you can see and maybe understand and comprehend uh, a little bit. Um, but before we can name the nations, we've got to figure out one thing first, and that is this God. Did you notice he says that the, the prophecy is to be addressed to God? And then it gives us a little bit of information about who this is. Our problem is we don't know if Gog is the name of someone, is the name of, uh, of a nation, or if it's metaphoric, if it's spiritually metaphoric, so that, and I, I'll tell you, there are literally dozens of different uh, uh, individuals or entities that have been identified by Bible scholars as uh, as a possible character for God. Okay, I just want you to know that. It could be an individual. One, one suggested that he was a, a tyrant, a tyrannical ruler who lived in the area of Lydia. <clears throat> now that, you know, I guess to me, if you're the leader of Lydia, uh, that doesn't sound all that tyrannical to me. That sounds pretty gentle. But others, others have been proposed. Some suggest that it's not an individual, but it's rather a title. Um, like Caesar, uh, like Pharaoh, those were titles, like king. And so some suggest that Gog is that. Uh, some suggest that Gog is one of the um, rulers in the area uh, around in the Middle East. Uh, and the word Gog in the Sumerian language means darkness. So it may be representative of darkness. Some suggest that because there hasn't been a, uh, or in this list of nations, did you notice a nation that was missing? Babylon. I mean, if this war is going to deliver the people of God from Babylon, doesn't Babylon have to be destroyed too? Or he's going to keep on rearing his ugly head, if you will, um, uh, in, in, in their situation. So some have suggested that Gog is representative of Babylon. Some have suggested that Gog is representative of, uh, of the Antichrist. And others say that, that Gog is the personification of of Satan. All of these were enemies of God's people on different scales and at different times. But this is what, what you can see creates the problem in interpreting this. We can't even figure out who the main guy is. But it could be all of those things. Sometimes God speaks to them. Um, <clears throat> now, once we identify the nations, it makes it a little bit easier for us to identify God. Uh, but even still, we also have to make it easier for us to identify uh, God 
we have to identify when this was taking place. Okay, do you, do you understand how all these things come, uh, uh, confound and confuse the understanding of, of this one that's being given this particular message? We are told in the body the content of this, uh, of this chapter as well as at the beginning of chapter 39 <clears throat> that Gog is first... He's called, in some versions, the New American Standard and the NIV both say that he is the Prince of Rosh. Okay? Rosh, uh, a lot of prophetic preachers or teachers would say, is representative of Russia. And, uh, uh, and certainly geographically, where Rosh historically was... By the way, I should say this, the names of these places that are mentioned in this chapter were places that were familiar to people in the 6th century B.C., but they're not to us. Okay, so if, they, if it would have said, if God would have said Russia, we get that. We'd understand where that is. But this Gog is the prince of Rosh. But it's not mentioned in most versions. It's only in a couple of versions. Uh, but it is mentioned there in 38, in 39, chapter 39. And if you go over to the book of Revelation, Gog is mentioned again in Revelation chapter 20. That battle, and this is part, we'll probably say this again so you can hear it and hold on to it. You don't have to take notes here in a moment when we identify the time. Um, in Revelation chapter 20 the uh, the battle of Armageddon has already been fought and the, the kingdom the thousand year millennial kingdom of Christ has already been um, has already taken place been established and in chapter 20 Satan is loosed and there is a war a battle uh and it's there where Magog, or where Gog, is reintroduced again into the story. So that tells us, that confuses us even further with regards to the time of when all this is taking place. But he's called the prince of Rosh, or of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, whether those were nations or whether those were particular cities. This is the, is the Gog that receives this prophecy. Now, now, let's go back to identifying the nations. I just want to get that in there to clear up who, who Gog was. Are you clear now? Well, in identifying these nations like Rosh and Magog and, and uh, Tubal and, and, and these others that are listed, uh, we have to understand where these places were and why they were there. Now, if you thought I've been boring so far, get ready. Because all the nations that are important biblically in the world are listed for us in Genesis chapter 10. And I, you don't need to turn. I'm going to put some verses up here. 
And Genesis chapter 10 is a genealogical tree of Noah. Okay? Whether you know it or not, every nation, every individual draws their family tree back to Noah. Because when Noah was saved and his, and his three sons and their wives on the ark, they were all that humanity had to offer. They were the only people. And so other people, since God made us to become people who come from other people, all the people who have lived, who are living now, and whoever will live, came from Noah's family. All right? Now, I want to show you something about Noah's family. Look at uh, Genesis chapter 10, verse 1. It says, these are the generations of the sons of Noah. He had three sons, right? Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. On the ark, there were just these four and their wives. The, and after, uh, after they got off the ark and they went to live out in this newly formed world, if you will, formed by the flood, they began to have sons. That's how they measured genealogy in those days. Sons were born to them. Okay, so you've got Noah, three sons, uh, uh, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Does that help you out any? I didn't think it would. So I'm going to go a little further. In verse 2, it says, here are the sons of Japheth. Now you see if you can hear some of the names that we read a moment ago in Ezekiel from this. Gomer. Magog, Medai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tiras. Okay? So the sons of the families uh, of, of, uh, of, what was it, Japheth, um, these are going to settle in a certain part of the world, and they are going to have families of their own, their family tree. Just got a new branch in it, and these branches are going to branch out, and they're going to settle in places that are going to bear their names. Okay? Now, as far as the sons of Ham go, Genesis chapter 10, verse 6 says, the sons of Ham are Cush, Put, or Mizraim, uh, in some versions, uh, Put, and Canaan. Uh, and then verse 22 tells us about the sons of Shem. Elam, Asher, Arpaxed, Lud, and Aram. Now, that's what Genesis, that's what the word of God says, is the foundations of the nations of the world. And remember, they scattered out from there. Some went north, some went east, and some went south. They didn't go West because there was a Mediterranean Sea there. Uh, <clears throat> but that's, they spread out into the world. And the Bible says in Genesis chapter 10 that every one of them spoke the same language. Now, you know what happened in chapter 11, don't you? One of the cities that was established 
that was named Babel, um, that was established by one of these family folks, uh, they decided to build a building. And let's build a tower on that building that goes all the way to heaven, and then we'll be in direct contact with God. And God said, before these people build another way to me, I must confound them. And he gave them all different languages so the work couldn't continue. So now what we have is we have the spread of people geographically, but we also have the spread of languages. And people who speak the same language tend to group up with people who speak their language and tend to study people who speak a different language. You get that idea. I want to show you where these family offsprings of Ham, Sham, and Japheth settled. So I'm, I'm going to put a map up. It's the, it's the closest I could find uh, to, to what it is that I want to show you. And it shows you, it, it says over in, uh, let's see, in the far right, the table of nations of Genesis 10. Okay, so you can see, can you make out roughly where we are? That blue in the middle, that's the Mediterranean and just, you, you see Asia, Europe, and Africa. And those the first ones that were, that were spoken of were the sons of Japheth. Now I wanna show you where the sons of Japheth largely settled in that area. That area uh, that would uh, include Magog, Gomer, uh, Tubal, that's that area of Europe, Asia, and Turkey, Asia Minor, okay? That's the rough area that, that uh, Japheth's sons settled. Ham, on the other hand, who was the, one of the sons settled in the area, I wanna show you where they settled, down in Northern Africa, and that's kind of their area. It's also parts of the Middle East. So do you, are you getting where I'm going with this? You got uh, Japheth here, Ham down here. There's a swath of land that goes from the west to the east across there. And that's where the, the sons of Shem, S-H-E-M, settled. And they settled in what is Palestine, Canaan, uh, the, this is the area that the Shemites lived. Have you heard of Semitic people? That's it. That's what we're talking about. Now, as far as the nations that are named in Ezekiel chapter 38 that we just read, I want to put, and they're, remember they're being drawn um, with a, by a hook in the mouth of Gagog, uh, of Gog, into battle with God's people. And I wanna show you where they come from, largely. Okay, so this next map will show you that. Um, this next map will show you that. There we are. And I don't know if you can see, it's an, that is a long ways away, but this is, these are the nations of the Battle of Magog. We have Rosh to the far north, Magog, Persia, Cush to the south, uh, Put or uh, Libya to the 
to the uh, to the west, uh, Tur area of Turkey, all of those. That's the nations that are we're talking about here are in this whole region around the Middle East. Now, I want to be real careful here because I'm not going to I'm not making a blanket statement, but largely this geographical area, not completely, but largely are composed of Islamic nations, of either population that are Islamic or of leadership governments that are Islamic and some of them even part of the, of the state, if you will, part of the uh, uh, caliphate, what, what, what we're dealing with when we, when we talk about Islam. Now, I'm not saying that this is, this is Islam. I just want you to notice where these nations are and what they have in common. Not all of them are Islamic. <clears throat> Rosh, if it's where that map shows it, all the way to the north is in the area of what is now southern Russia or the old Soviet Union. And uh, if that's the case, Russia is not a predominantly Islamic nation. It is a nation, an atheistic, a declared, avowed atheistic nation. But these other ones are largely Islamic. And you know what? The atheistic nations and the Islamic nations have in common? They hate God. And they hate God's people. And that's going to be a big impetus of them all coming together to fight in this battle. Now, I can't say for sure that Gomer is this one. Some say Gomer is Germany. After all, just listen to how it sounds. That's not a good way to do Bible interpretation, okay? I'm just saying that these areas have all been at one point in time, the ones that are listed, and they may have been the sixth century names and titles for those places at that time and we don't you know things have changed are you following me so far so these are that this is us identifying the nations now for us to fully identify uh, the nations we have to do something else and that is we have to identify the time when this is happening and in order for us to do that, we need to look at chapter 38, beginning at verse 7 down through verse 16. Let me tell you why this is important. If you say that Rosh, Gomer, whatever, is such and such nation, in 100 years from now, it may not be the name of that nation. Okay, that's obvious from what we're dealing with here. So when this battle, when God is gathering Magog, or Gog to get Magog and all these other nations together to do battle with Israel, that, whenever that takes place, that's gonna help us to understand um, uh, the names and the, to identify the, the enemies. The problem is it doesn't really tell us the time either. It gives us, there are a couple of of uh, clues, if you will, some things that we can 
we can uh, understand a little bit about that will help us in understanding this. So I want us to look then at uh, beginning at verse 7 under identifying the times. Verse 7 says, be ready and keep ready, you and all your hosts. Now, this is still, you see the quotation marks at the beginning? This is still part of the uh, of the prophecy that God is, or that God tells Ezekiel to speak to God. Make sure God gets this and understands this. You're going to do all of these things. And what I need you to do, Gog, is be ready and keep ready. This is not a prophecy to Judah. This is not a prophecy to Christians. This is prophecy to the enemy that God is gathering to do battle with his people. Okay? You'll, you'll understand that by next Sunday. Okay, maybe by the end of today what I'm, what I'm saying there. But he's, this is being said to God. Be ready and keep ready. You and all your hosts that are assembled about you. Be a guard for them. After many days you will be mustered. Here's the first clue. After many days. That is a prophetic way of saying, listen, this isn't going to happen next week. Or next month. But it's going to be a long time off. Now that, that's important to us because we live a long time off from that, don't we? Here's what I do know. We are closer to whatever God was prophesying here than, than Ezekiel was. Gog is closer today than he was uh, 2,500 years ago. It's, it's getting closer. It's getting closer. And the idea of get ready and stay ready has a powerful meaning at the further into the future we come. Okay. So after many days, the first hint, you will be mustered and in the latter years, that latter years, there's a second understanding for us. By the way, this verse, this phrase, the latter years, this is the only place in the Bible that's used. So in the latter years, it's, it's, it's toward, it's not only a far off, but it's toward the end. Okay, now there's still one clue yet, yet to, to take place. But he says, in the latter years, you will go against the land that's restored from war. The land whose people were gathered from many peoples on the mountains of Israel, which have been a continual waste. Let me just interrupt our reading to say, do you remember, were you here last week? Last week, we talked about the Valley of the Dry Bones where the people of Israel, the dead, God's people were reconstituted, if you will. Their bones were put back together. Sinews went on the bones, flesh on the sinews, skin on the flesh, and then God breathed in them life. And they, and they, they were gathered back together and they settled on the mountains of Israel. That's, that's all in chapter 37 if you want to look back. So that get, that's a clue. This is somehow after Israel has been reconstituted as a nation. That happened. In 1948, Israel was reconstituted as a nation and people began to repatriate 
Israel. We talked a little bit about that uh, about that last week. So he says this is in the in, it, this is going to be taking place in Israel, where the land has been returned to the people, and the people have been returned to the land. Verse thirty-eight or verse eight. Its people were brought out from the peoples and now dwell securely, all of them. You will advance coming on like a storm. You will be like a cloud covering the land, you and all your hordes and many people with you. Thus says the Lord God on that day, thoughts will come into your mind. You will devise an evil scheme and you will say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages, defenseless villages. I will attack into, into Israel and fall upon the quiet people who dwell securely there, all of them dwelling without walls, having no bars or gates, to seize spoil from them, to carry off plunder, to turn your hand against the waste places that are now inhabited, and the people who were gathered from the nations who have acquired livestock and goods who dwell at the center of the earth, Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish, those are economic partners, trading partners with God. And the, what they're saying is, go down and capture Israel and take all the goods, the gold, the oil, whatever's in that land, take it and we'll buy it. And so they're cheering for God to do this uh, and and the the, um, the the individuals there uh, will say to you, have you come to seize the spoil? Have you assembled your host to carry off plunder, to carry away silver and gold, to take away the livestock and the goods to seize great spoil? Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to God, Thus says the Lord God, on that day when my people, Israel, are dwelling securely, will you not know it? You will come from your place out of the uttermost parts of the north, still talking to God, <clears throat> and many people with you, all of them riding on horses, a great host, a mighty army, army, you will come up against my people, Israel, like a cloud covering the land, and in the latter days I will bring you against my land that the nations may know me when through you, O God, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. What we're talking about is some future battle in the far off from Ezekiel, in the latter years, in the latter days, this is going to take place. And did you notice, and I haven't said anything about this intentionally yet. I wanted you to get this. Have you noticed why God is wanting to come and do battle? To destroy the people. If this is the battle of Armageddon, or if this is the battle at the end of the age, I had always thought that evil would just keep getting worse and worse and worse and worse until they just, they're just so heaved at God and his people that they just want to annihilate them from the earth. Did you notice in this phrase, in this chapter so far, that God's doing all this? God's raising, God's stirring, God, uh, God is stirring Gog up. 
God is, is gathering all these nations along with him. He's put a, he put a hook in their mouth and he's dragging them into this battle. Because he wants to reveal to them and to his people Israel once and for all who he is. That's an important understanding in getting all this. God is protective of Israel because they are his people. He is a jealous God. We'll see that in the next section. And he wants, uh, he wants to deliver them because of who they are. But he wants everybody worldwide to see his delivery so they will know. Your God is the one true God. That's important if these nations are nations of, of, uh, of religions that are other than God's religion. We talked about those a moment ago. We identified the nations. God is going to once and for all defeat every foe he has. And he's bringing those foes into the conquest. And he set, he set things up in such a way that the foes are going to look and say, Israel has no defense. They don't have old cities. They, all they have, if we can get a big enough army, we can overwhelm them. But somehow Israel keeps winning. God keeps delivering. And so there's a false sense of security. And by the way, by this time, did you notice Israel is going to be have that false sense of security? We're okay. We don't need to build to build walls. Not because they knew God and loved God, but because they keep winning all these battles, all these wars, and they think that they're okay. Well, that brings us then. Now remember, this is part one. Okay. I want to, uh, it brings us to the outcome, to the outcome of this battle. And this is all still part of the prophecy. <clears throat> Ezekiel says, thus says the Lord God, are you he of whom I spoke in former days by my servants, the prophets of Israel, who in those days prophesied for years that I would bring you Against them, But on that day, the day that God shall come against the land of Israel, declares the Lord my God, my wrath will be roused in my anger. Or in my jealousy. Have you ever thought about the times in the Bible that say things like this? God is jealous for me. He wants me. I am his. And he doesn't like me chasing after other gods, being unfaithful and immoral to them because he's jealous. And his wrath, is, his jealousy is going to give way to his wrath and his wrath to his anger. And on that day, uh, declares the Lord, my wrath will be roused in my anger. Verse 19, in my jealousy, I'm blazing. My blazing wrath, I declare, on that day there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. As the children, as these, this battle of the 
Confederates are coming up. I don't mean that North and South Confederates, but this confederacy of nations, this group of nations that God has put together. Um, uh, as they come into the land, there's going to be a great earthquake. The fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the beasts of the field, and all creeping things that creep on the ground, and all the people who are on the face of the earth. That's a, that's a big in, uh, earthquake, a worldwide uh, earthquake. And the epicenter is right there in Israel. He says, the mountains shall be torn down, the city shall fall, and every wall shall tumble to the ground. I will summon a sword against Gog. On all my mountains, declares the Lord God, every man's sword will be against his brother. With pestilences and bloodshed, I will enter into judgment with him, and I will rain on him and his hordes and the many people who are with him. Torrential rains, hailstones, fire, and sulfur. Did you notice that God's doing the fighting? Israel doesn't fire a shot. They don't call for their partners, the United States, to come in with their nuclear weaponry. God is taking care of business himself. And he's going to raise this earthquake, and then he's going to rain down on them with the fire and the brimstone. Verse 23 says, so I will show my greatness and my holiness and make myself known in the eyes of many nations. Then they will know. Then they will know that I'm the Lord. You see, it's one thing, and I don't mean to make light of the fact that God is doing this to deliver his people, but his ultimate purpose is to honor and glorify himself. And he wants the nations, and by the way, the word for nations there could translate peoples. All the peoples of the earth, all the people groups, all these these areas, these nations, these cities that were settled following the flood, all of these that built their own kinds of cultures and their own systems of government and developed their own languages, all of these peoples will know that I am the Lord. Now, again, now we kind of have to go back a little bit and say, okay, so when is all this happening? Now, I'm, I can't be dogmatic with this, but I'll tell you what I think it is. Remember I told you some of the different times when this could be taking place? One theory was that this is the Battle of Armageddon. The problem is it doesn't exactly fit in the book of Revelation chapter 19. And at this battle, Gog is destroyed. And in the battle of, of uh, Armageddon, Gog is not destroyed. Okay? Gog, because Gog shows up two chapters later in chapter 20. And so Gog is still around, but this is following, I think that this is a combination of the battle of Armageddon. God's going to bring all these ones in, and he's going to take the leaders, the dragon. The beast, the antichrist, the false prophet, they're going to be placed, they're going to be cast into the fire. I believe that Gog is somehow either a personification of the antichrist or of Satan himself. 
and they are they are going to be put into the uh, into the pit for a thousand years while Jesus' kingdom is on earth, and then it will be unleashed. The kingdom they'll be unleashed on the earth, and they're going to do a battle like we haven't seen before. But God's going to do all the fighting and all the delivering, and then God, Satan, the Antichrist, all of the forces of darkness and of evil that have been in opposition to God and his people throughout the history of time will be utterly destroyed. Now again, I can't be dogmatic that that's what it is, but that's what it, it shares with me. So I, I am neither living, I don't know, all of this could happen tomorrow. Okay, I... I saying that I am, but I am neither living in the day when this is taking place, this battle, nor was it, am I living in the time when the, when the prophecy was delivered. So what does this, what does this tell me? Okay, so now I, I already know where part two is going, okay? You may not yet, but I already know part two in chapter 39. But I think that I, knowing these things, I want to tell you three principles that are true that you need to know and take with you today from what we've talked about today. First principle, we don't need to, near, uh, to fear the future because God is sovereign over it. Every single thing we talked about that took place in chapter 38, God did. There was a, a powerful horde of armies that were coming into Israel and they had on paper, they were gonna win that battle. But God sent an earthquake and God sent a rainstorm and hail and fire and sulfur and brimstone and he did it all. There is nothing you face in life, nothing you face in life that God isn't sovereign over. And by sovereign, I mean that he is ruling over. And he can overrule. You get that? We don't need to be afraid of the future because God, the future is in God's hands. He can make the future happen exactly the way he wants. It doesn't matter how powerful the nations become. It doesn't matter how great they become, how many kinds of weapons they can, they can develop. He's, he is sovereign over them. A second principle is this one. We can either come to know God now or we can be made to know him and his wrath one day that's yet to come. This is one place where you and I have some freedom, some opportunity, some, some authority, some power. You can choose if you will follow God now or if you will follow God for all eternity, being introduced to who he is by his wrath. Right now, you can be introduced to God by his grace, by his mercy, 
by his loving kindness, by his steadfast mercies. You can know him now and be delivered from his wrath. Or you can meet him when his wrath is poured out on the nations. Up to you. you make the, you're responsible to make your choice. You don't make a choice. You're going to have one made for you. You understand that? We can either come to, to God now on our own as a response to his love. Or we can see God for who he is then. And say to ourselves for all eternity, oh my, oh my, oh my. Third principle that I, that I get from this, from this uh, prophecy is that true security is found in God alone. Did you notice that the earthquake didn't just affect the bad people? It also shook the nations, the, the mountains of Israel where uh, the people of God were living. It leveled it all. It tore it all down. Um, if you put your security in the things that you've got around you, understand those are temporary and they can come tumbling down. Ask the three little pigs about that. They built houses, and they thought because they had houses, they were safe. But the, that old wolf came along and huffed and puffed and blew the house of straw down, the house of sticks down. But he came to a house he couldn't blow down. And, and unless that house in your life is God, you don't have security. Your portfolios and your finances aren't, aren't secure enough. They, they can't see you through. Not if inflation keeps going the way it's going. You see, not if there are bad people who come in and steal it. You get all, you get all the rub that I'm talking about. And true security, something that lasts, has to be in something that lasts. And that's God. In fact, that's God alone. And that's what you can take today home with you. Chew on it this week. I hope you'll come back next week. I hope you'll join with us next week as we study part two of this. Because there's still yet more to come. But we see God's powerful hand in control till the very end. I want you to bow your heads with me in. and we're going to have a time of prayer and commitment. I pray more than anything else right now, I pray that you're ready for this battle to take place. I pray that somewhere down when this happens down the road in the far, uh, in, in the far off days, Whenever that is, if that's today or tomorrow or next month, whenever that is, that you're ready for it. You can be ready because Jesus offers to you salvation now. You can choose it now or you can be introduced to it but not receive it.
for all eternity. I pray that during these next few moments, you would just prepare your hearts for that day. Father, thank you for the, the message that we've heard today. Thank you for this prophecy that was delivered, this prophecy of warning that was delivered by Ezekiel to us. This warning, <coughs> this understanding that today, now's the time for us to be ready, to ready ourselves through our faith in Jesus. So today, Father, I pray for, I pray for this congregation of people, all these who can hear my voice right now, I just pray for them that right now, right now, they would surrender their life, their heart to Jesus, to make themselves ready for that day when Jesus returns and all is judged, you, that you'd find us ready. So Lord, in these next few moments, have your way in each and every heart. I pray this in Jesus' name.